You're listening to a 3CR podcast created in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au. Now that heart is beating fast, and that's the rhythm I can dance to. Why am I glad I've got a chance to? That one big heart that's beating fast. Tomorrow morning, let it rain. Tomorrow morning, let it pour. Tonight we're in the groove together. Ain't gonna worry about stormy weather. Gonna kick all trouble out the door. Beat out all trouble and drunk. Beat out all trouble and drunk. Beat out all trouble and drunk. And kick all trouble out the door. Beat me that rhythm on the drum. Welcome to Radical Australia and Community Radio 3CR. This program is streaming on 3cr.org.au. The program is podcast. You can go to 3cr.org.au to access the podcast. There are many interesting interviews that have been podcasts. So uh, if you're bored and you're listless during this COVID-19 lockdown and you're sick and tired of uh, swimming in the social media cesspool, this is your chance to look at the uh, podcast and listen to some exceptionally interesting people who've done some fascinating things. And talking about fascinating, interesting people... We have Dr. Greg Polgrain on the line. How are you, Greg? Uh, good. How are you? Well, thanks. Yes. Yeah, look, I'm sure you survived the last interview you did with me. So the good <laughs> thing about this interview is we're not going to talk about you. We're going to talk about what you've done. Right, right. <laughs> so that, that should make you comfortable. <laughs> so yes. um, unfortunately, you were supposed to be here on Sunday the 19th of September for the West Papua Summit, but it's going to be done by Zoom now because... Yes. We're in lockdown and we're going to continue to be in lockdown, I reckon, for another month or so, the way things are going, which is unfortunate. Yeah, COVID intervened again. It intervened again. And I was looking forward to... I always... I can't stand Zoom. It gives me a headache. I don't know about you. Does it give you a headache? Yes. Uh, on and on. On and on, yeah. Now, you've put out this fascinating book. What's it called? JFK versus Alan Dulles, Battleground, Indonesia, yes. Right, so so JFK versus Alan Dulles, Battleground, Indonesia. Well, everybody knows who JFK is. I assume very few, well, some of our listeners will know who Alan Dulles is. So what, how much work have you done? Dulles. Dulles, D-U-L-L-E-S. Yeah, but the pronunciation, I was corrected the way I was saying it. Somebody, it comes from the word Douglas, apparently. Oh, right. The great-great-grandfather of Alan was working in the East Indies years ago, mm-hmm. Indonesia, that is, mm-hmm. when it was Dutch. And the Dutch G, the, the glottal G, when they pronounced Douglas, it came out Dallas. Without the, the G got swallowed down the throat. Mm. And Douglas became Dallas. Dallas. <laughs> and that's where the name comes from. Mm. 
That's fascinating. Now, I understand you've put 30 years of your life researching in this book. Is this correct? That's what I've been told by yeah, the Department well, Office. Well, I started when I was living in London and whatever in Amsterdam and uh, started interviewing people, but the, the JFK didn't really come in until yeah, quite a way through. I wasn't a JFK, you know, uh, specialist or anything, but um, I was interested in Indonesia and West Papua, and uh, JFK intervened in the 1960s, and he settled the dispute between 1961-62. He settled the dispute that had been going on since the war between the Dutch and Indonesians over sovereignty of West New Guinea or West Papua. And uh, when JFK intervened, he basically asked the Dutch to leave. Get uh, to leave. They'd been the, the Dutch had been in control of Netherlands, New Guinea for oh, 150 years, but they never they hadn't done anything. The only time they first really started to colonise was after the war, after the war, and the Indonesians hadn't done anything either. But they they decided to claim. West New Guinea as as part of the former Netherlands East Indies. So, and they said Majapahit, an old empire, was controlling, which is fanciful. But uh, when JFK came in, that's when I started looking more closely at his role. And, uh, well, I, I found that he was very, very heavily involved. And uh, he'd reached the stage where he was actually planning to visit Jakarta in 1964, and various people have said, starting with the ambassador, U.S. ambassador in Jakarta, he said that's it's linked with his assassination. Mm. And I read a few theses saying the same thing, and that's, that's what started me doing some research. Right. And when you talk about research, obviously you're not one of these uh, media groupies who goes out and looks at what's on the net and cobbles together something. <laughs> Could you give us an idea of the depth of the research and what you had to do to collect the information to put the book together? Well, I've spoken, interviewed, either on the phone or in person or by writing, with just about everybody linked with West Papua, everybody except Kissinger. He's, <laughs> he's the only man who's escaped. And uh, that's because you have to pay 50000 to have lunch with him, apparently. Uh, well, haven't you got a spare 50,000? No, sorry. <laughs> but I've interviewed, well, the head of NATO, who used to be uh, the Dutch foreign minister for 17 years. Who's that? What's his Joseph name? Lunds, L -U -N -S, Joseph Lunds, L-U-N-S, Joseph Lunds, Lunds. Mm -hmm. And uh, that was a very interesting interview. He, uh, I remember walking into NATO headquarters and getting checked for all, you know, any weapons and things, and, OK, come in. And he said, we've got 30 minutes, we've got 30 minutes to talk. You know? mm. And we ended up talking for more than 90 minutes. Mm. And uh, when we walked outside, there was a great string of uh, military attaches and, and, and uh, half a dozen anyway, waiting mm. for the interview, for their interview. Mm. And he apologised and said, oh, my Australian friend here, as, as we've, been, we've been talking about some interesting topics, you know, <laughs> because I brought along all the, all the evidence mm. to show that he'd been hiding... As foreign minister for the Netherlands, he'd been hiding the fact that they'd discovered this amazing gold mine before World War II, mm -hmm. the biggest gold mine in the world. It's being operated now by Freeport, Freeport Indonesia, Freeport McMoran, which is American, 
but it's it's called Freeport Indonesia, the company operating there. But uh, it's by far the biggest gold mine, copper mine. Well, the biggest gold mine in the world. They also bring out copper. But uh, I interviewed the man who, the geologist who found the gold in 1936 and, uh, and so on. Another interesting interview was the Japanese fellow called uh, Shigetara Nishijima. Nishijima was the uh, naval spy put into the into the Netherlands East Indies before World War, before the Japanese invaded mm-hmm. Indonesia. Mm-hmm. Anyway, I, I met him uh, in his home in Tokyo three times in 1983. And uh, who else? Dean Rusk. Dean Rusk was Kennedy's Secretary of State. Uh, and so, so, so why, why do these so-called important people want to talk to you? <laughs> I mean, what, what did you what did you dangle I, I in what did you dangle in front of them? Yeah, usually a snippet of information showing, saying, you know, I've I've got something here that's I know you you know its importance. Let's talk about it. You know, <laughs> for, for example, with Nishijima, he he was the man who wrote the with Sukarno he wrote the Proclamation of Independence. That's Indonesian independence in 1945. Nishijima and Sukarno sat down together and wrote out what there was to say. When Sukarno went outside the building and made the big public announcement, it was Nishijima who arranged it, you see. Right. And mm. Nishijima was there during the war organising Indonesian nationalists to for independence, getting them ready for independence, how to run a country, you know, how to do the, run this department, that department, everything. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So he's a brilliant. I remember reading some... Uh, assessment of his capability, saying he's worth 10,000 men. <laughs> that's, that's, not, not bad. That's but when, not I, bad. Yes. when I first knocked on his door, he, in, in Tokyo, he put his head out the door and said, have you spoken with Dean Rusk yet? You know? I mean, he was, he was interested because I'd found out when, when, the, when the bombing occurred in the uh, uh, start of the war, you know, and... Uh, 1940, what, 1941 when they... Yes. Uh, and the Japan got in the war and uh, what happened in Indonesia at the time was about... Most of the Japanese had left, but the Dutch arrested the remaining Japanese and put them on two boats and sent them to Australia. And they were supposed to be in detention for the, for the duration of the war. But six months later, 800 of the top ones, spies and very, you know, very qualified Japanese, were sent back to Indonesia from from Australia. They were mm-hmm. supposed to be in Loveday internment camp yes. down in South Australia for the war. Yes. But someone, I think Alan Dulles was one of them, but Dean Rusk, you see, was another. And I wrote to Dean Rusk asking him, saying, well, did, you, well, did you help with the return of these Japanese at the start of Second World War when they organised Indonesian independence? Mm-hmm. And I, he said, no, no, it wasn't me. Check the State Department, you know. Yeah. So that's that's why Nishijima put his head out the window, head out the door, and said, "Have you spoken with Dean Rusk yet?" When I the first words that he greeted me with, you know. Yeah. Yeah. But uh, I brought along a Japanese translator to help me with. I didn't know whether he spoke English, but he did. And as I was talking to him for the first meeting, uh, sometimes you'd have to get a bit, you know, hey, oh, come on, come on, that can't be correct, or something speak something like that and the Japanese woman said to me oh please please sir you 
you can't speak to this man like that. He's a very, very important man. You know? <laughs> Please be more polite. I've, I've been it, to it, Japan a number of occasions, and I understand. Yeah. I understand that yeah, there is that difference. When, yes. when she went to the yeah. toilet for five minutes, he leaned over and said, "Look, next Forget time you come, leave, leave her behind. I can speak English. You can, I can just have a good talk then." <laughs> <laughs> so we got along really quite fine, and he he actually walked me. When I, after the third meeting, he came with me to the railway station along the street. Mm-hmm. People said that was extraordinary. I was greatly honoured oh. to have his company, yeah. yeah. So when did you start, when was the eureka moment that you kind of Well, that was together? in Melbourne, actually, right. in Melbourne. I was doing some research there at Monash, and I realised I was going through all the figures for this big gold mine up in West Papua, biggest gold mine, Freeport gold mine, and I realised that um, the figures were wrong. <laughs> They've been saying they'd be getting so much gold every year since they started in 1972, gold and copper, and the gold concentration, when they first discovered it, and this was checked three times by Dutch government report, by a Freeport uh, assay, you know, they, they went up there themselves and did some drilling while the Dutch were still there, and uh, in the, the original report by Jean-Jacques Dozy, who was the man, the geologist, who discovered it in 1936, all of these reports said that gold was 15 grams per tonne. But ever since Freeport have got in and started mining, they've been saying it's 2 grams per tonne. Right. So hold on, I said, what's going on here, you know? And uh, at the time, my father was uh, working in Cairns, Right, he was a stockbroker, right next door to the Freeport office. And I asked when I was in the Netherlands, I asked him later, can you please ask, because he had lunch every day with Freeport. <laughs> <laughs> and I said, please ask the Freeport man very discreetly, mm-hmm. if you would, um, how much gold there is, you know. Mm-hmm. And when my father asked the question, the Freeport man put his hand over his shoulder and went over in the corner and said, there's so much gold, wow, you know. <laughs> and he, he didn't give any figures, but he just gave, yeah, you know, It wasn't two grams average. per tonne, yes. Yeah, and I, you know, without knowing or without really thinking of the consequences, I included that in a university magazine in Nijmegen in the Netherlands, and mm-hmm. uh, wow, the repercussions were amazing straight away. That Freeport man was kicked out straight away. Really? In cans. How could, how could they have linked it? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, this is in the Netherlands, in a yeah. little magazine with a, about, you know, it's got a circulation of about 200 you know, right. every month. Yeah. Wow. Anyway, and I was amazed. And my father contacted me and said, what the hell are you doing, you know? <laughs> and he, they even tried to kick him out. Right. But he was, yeah, this is true. And he, but he was high enough up, you know. And his, the bosses, his bosses yeah. uh, supported him yeah. and stood up against Freeport and he kept his job. So why the discrepancy? What's the, what's the discrepancy well, all so about? Well, gold is the biggest gold mine. They're cheating. The Indonesian government. Indonesian government, yeah. yeah. And when I published this, the Indo- some Indonesians in the parliament read this and arranged for me to speak in the parliament in Jakarta. Mm. And I thought, wow, that's, you know, that's going to be interesting. Did you did you speak in Jakarta? Well, well, what happened was, you know, I prepared it and submitted. You know, I was going to speak for half an hour, 
Um, I was interested because the previous speaker, the previous week, had been the daughter of Ayatollah Khomeini. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so I was really filling some big shoes there. For yes. <laughs> so I, I prepared all this, and and uh, uh, some Indonesian admiral was looking after me. Mm-hmm. He bought me a beautiful batik shirt. And so you're in Jakarta at the... At the in, oh, yeah, sitting yeah. in Jakarta. We were right. doing it all in Jakarta, yeah. Yep, yep. And... Uh, I was waiting up there. We had the car ready to go to the parliament. Mm. I was all dressed and ready and had, you know, one hour to go. We were sort of getting ready for the last cup of coffee. Mm-hmm. And suddenly, bang, this big downpour, the rain started. And it just pelted down like, I've never seen, I could hear the rain against the, wind, the windows, about 12 stories up in the hotel mm-hmm. where we were waiting. It's bang, 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 you know. And the, the streets just filled up with water. And everything just stopped in Jakarta because it was the streets were flooded. And that's what prevented me from speaking in the parliament. So even God's not on your side. Well, I thought Huey <laughs> might have been on my side, actually. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> mm. Because had I really, had I gone, I was a little bit worried. Uh, mm. Because had I gone along and made stated over the, all of that, it would have been... I mean, the Indonesians would have liked it, but Freeport would not have liked it. Yeah, yeah but they, they'd be greasing palms, wouldn't they, all the way into Parliament? Oh, they have. I, yeah. I remember meeting one of the top lawyers in Jakarta, and he told me he'd seen the document when when Suharto was still in, in presidency. Yeah. He'd seen a document that Suharto was being paid quite a large sum of money every month or something from Freeport mm. and was going into some foreign bank account mm. to, to keep him happy with because he knew what was happening. But he was just getting paid off, and I think they've continued that practice. Oh, I'm sure they have, yeah. So let's get back to the title of the book, JFK versus Alan Dulles, is Dulles, it? Dulles, Dulles. Yeah. Right. So what's the link? First of all, who's this Alan Dulles Alan character? Dulles was, yes, people know about John Foster Dulles because he was Secretary of State in the 50s under President Eisenhower. Mm-hmm. The man in charge of the CIA in that same, in the 50s, was Alan, the younger brother of John Foster. Mm-hmm. Now, but he didn't start there. In, Alan was started working for US intelligence because he's got uh, two uncles, I think, secretary, former secretaries of state, both of them, I think. Anyway, very good connections, very good connections. And he was, he was a genius, really. He was a Absolute genius. When he was eight years old, because his relatives and things used to gather in his house and used to talk about, you know, big, big global issues, he used to hide behind the curtain and listen to the conversation and take notes. (laughs) (laughs) At eight. (laughs) At eight years of age. And he wrote a book on the Boer War at eight years of age. At eight. Can you believe it? No, I can't. On the Boer War. On the Boer War, because he heard them, all the uncles and fathers and grandfathers talking about these big topics. And he wrote the book and the Secretary of State, his, his uncle or whatever, published the book. Mm. <laughs> he thought it was remarkable. Well, mm. it, it is. It is remarkable. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, that's when he started. He, he was in, working in US intelligence when, uh, before the Americans entered the First World War. You know? In other words, he was working in intelligence before Kennedy was born. Right. That gives you an idea of the advantage mm. that he had over Kennedy. Mm. And, uh, but he was ruthless from the start when he was, I think, 
2023 or something, working in the US consulate in Geneva or Basel or somewhere, and the, the British intelligence told the Americans that one of the women working in the office was a German spy. And they said, we've got to get rid of her. Mm-hmm. So Alan was given the job of walking her along the footpath where the British jumped out of the shadows and he never saw her again, you know. Mm. But before he walked her along the footpath, he took her to a meal mm-hmm. for one hour, an hour or two, and talked and talked, you know. Mm. And why he did that, knowing she was going to be eliminated. Well, just to I just relax think that's a little just, bit just, strange. But, uh, just relax yeah. Yeah, maybe, yeah. but that's he was in in that level of intelligence at mm. very young age, you know, twenty mm. something, low twenty three. So what he just made up, he made his way up the ranks, did he, to become director? Or oh well, in the nineteen, no, he was a he he was involved with his brother John Foster in the in the Versailles Treaty after World War One. Mm. Uh, he was involved at the top level at a very early age, and. Uh, he was the person who divided up uh, Middle Europe, you know, where you get Czechoslovakia and, mm. and and Romania, and he was the man who actually made all those geographical boundaries after after World War One. Mm. So when the when the Russian Revolution happened in seventeen eighteen or something, he 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 got a famous story where he tells the new recruits in the CIA in the fifties. It was a Saturday morning. He had arrangements for playing a game of golf, uh, tennis with two lovely Swedish ladies and the telephone rang and he answered it and it was somebody called Lennon. <laughs> <laughs> he didn't know Lennon then yes. and he said, oh, I've got urgent talks. I need to talk with you urgently, you know. Mm-hmm. And and he said, oh, please ring back on Monday, you know. The office <laughs> <I'm> <laughs> Lennon, Lennon got on the famous train and went over and started the Russian Revolution, etc., you know. Mm. And he always tells the man, the men in the CIA office, answer the bloody phone, you know. Yeah, you never know. <laughs> <laughs> when it rings, answer the phone. Uh, so so that, when, whether it's true or not, I don't uh, know. Who knows? When was he appointed as CIA director? Well, he was in intelligence all the time. He was mm. the top man for Rockefeller Oil all right. through the 20s and 30s. Mm. He's the man who used to talk about arms limitation after World War One. He was very high up. And uh, he was in, in intelligence in the what they call the OSS, Office of uh, OSS. It's, it's a pre- precursor for the CIA anyway. Mm-hmm. They, were, they were operating in World War Two, and he was the head man in Switzerland. Mm-hmm. And to give you an idea of how skilled he was in intelligence, he had penetrated Hitler's inside circle. That's quite amazing. Isn't it? Oh, it is, yeah. Yeah, and he'd he arranged the peace for Italy when the uh, Allied troops came up through Italy, and then Italy had to surrender. It was Dulles who did the peace peace arrangements, you know, mm-hmm. rather than I mean, the head of the army, Montgomery or whoever it was, Eisenhower. It was Dulles who arranged it all. And even in the in the Japanese section uh, of the war over in the Far East. It was the Japanese, when the time came to surrender, the Japanese approached Alan Dulles before anybody yeah. else. That's how powerful he was. Mm. So in the 50s, when Eisenhower became president, he really, really wanted that job as head of the CIA, uh, which was just, had just been formed, you know, after the war. And, uh, and he got it with, with help from Kissinger, who was 
uh, a top university professor then. Mm-hmm. Kissinger put out a lot of uh, you know positive things about this remarkable Alan, and he was picked by uh, Eisenhower to be uh, head of the head of the. He was he wasn't picked initially. In fact, he was the choice of picking Alan as head of the CIA was delayed quite a month or so. He was the last person <laughs> in the Eisenhower administration to be to be chosen. Huh? Mm-hmm. <laughs> so they, they didn't. They didn't. They knew what he was like. They knew he was a little bit. I don't know. Uh, severe. I think his covert activities were always a bit mm-hmm. sus. Yeah, he, he's the type of person who really thought of the elected leaders as basically as inconvenience. You know. Yes. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Did he? Um, so he yeah. yeah. Go on. No. No. So. What was his tenure like once he became head of the CIA? What, what... Well, the first thing he did was the uh, change of regime in uh, Mossadegh. Remember the oil in Iran? Oh, Iran, yes, yes. Yeah, the, the Shah of Iran was been there for a while, but uh, mm. uh, been there ever since Mossadegh was ousted by mm. uh, Dulles. Mm. That was a, that was his first big. Uh, so success, big on intervention. Yes, we won't say success because right. the Shah of Iran didn't have a good record. You know, he used to, when I was in school in Cairns, we used to have a, this famous visitor coming up, running on the Karanda Railway, you know, going up the, the range. Mm. The Shah of Iran, it was. Really? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And we used to think, oh, he's a remarkable person, you know. I was in grade 10 or something. Mm-hmm. But uh, yeah, nobody questioned what sort of regime he was. He had... You know, he's in control of and how he kept control and you know, because mm. all of the uh, uh, human rights infringements that, that he incurred in his time in power, that's why we got what we got when he left, you know, the Muslims, mm. Muslim power, Khomeini and whatever have been in control since then. Right. So, so you can thank the, Alan Dulles for yeah. the whole dirty business. Yeah, you know? So let's, let's go back a little bit. So Alan Dulles, that was his first uh, venture. What other ventures would you say he uh, he was involved in in terms of trying to change international oh, politics to change of regime was his yeah. speciality was it mm. <laughs> maybe yeah. joe oh, biden america. should have should have talked one after to another in yeah. south america right. oh, my. Yeah. 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 but um i mean this this meant torture extrajudicial killings it just went on and on yeah yeah well you've chile and mm. uh yeah oh, many Many countries. Chile is probably the one we Australians seem to know about because they bombed the palace. It was an elected government, democratically yes. elected yes. government, mm. but he didn't like the person elected. You know, mm. the same happened in uh, Panama, not Panama. Uh, ah, I forget Central America, Central you know, where, America. where they had the elected governor, elected president. Mm. But he he wanted he wanted to uh, help some of the people to get land back from the big. Uh, canning, what's the big canning factory that... Uh, oh, the banana people, yeah. Yeah, yeah. It doesn't really matter there, mate, doesn't really matter. But getting back getting back to Alan, what are more of his more notable achievements in terms of uh, assassinations? Well, the, the main... Uh, the Church Committee, which was a Senate, uh, US uh, Senate investigation, followed by a man, by a senator called Church. It came out in 1975, and it was looking at uh, assassination of foreign leaders, etc. and Alan Dulles figured 
entirely in that. Alan had died in 69, so this is six years later. Mm-hmm. But they said Alan Dulles was involved in, or primarily responsible, they said. They pointed the finger at him in particular, saying he was the person responsible for the death of Lumumba in mm-hmm. the Congo. Yeah. He was only been president for three months, but he didn't like Lumumba, you see. Mm-hmm. And, uh, so and so, so, uh, Was he working on his own initiative, or was he working more for a, um, a corporate... Uh, Oh, well, he's brilliant because he had the ideas, but he certainly wasn't working by himself. He's got a huge network. Mm. That's what I'm saying in terms of outside the CIA, what type of network did he... When they call him Director of Central Intelligence, Mm. the CIA is one of ten intelligence agencies. Mm. Director of Central Intelligence is in charge of ten Army, Air Force, Intelligence, National Security, uh, but... Apart from that, he's got his own intelligence networks as well mm-hmm. because he'd been operating since the 1920s, you know. Mm-hmm. And, and one of these networks involved a fellow called uh, De Morenshield, George De Morenshield, who was the man close with Lee Harvey Oswald who was accused of killing President Kennedy. But I found out that George De Morenshield... He came from the Black Sea, and uh, he was a refugee from the Russian Revolution. And but Alan, Alan had met George when George was met his father, really, because his father was in charge of all the oil around Baku, the biggest oil field then. Mm. And when when Alan went over to negotiate in 19, just after the Russian Revolution, uh, George was 10 years old. <laughs> but he did meet him. He did meet his father. So uh, that's the first meeting. Then they, he, George and his father went to Poland. They were, they were, uh, and then he became a cavalry officer or something for a year or two. Then he studied a PhD in Belgium in the 1930s. And Alan was at the time uh, the uh, the top lawyer for um, Sullivan and Cromwell, who's the He's the lawyers for the Rockefeller oil industry. Mm-hmm. He was based in Paris at the mm-hmm. time. And he, I'm sure, I haven't got any strong evidence that he met him, but uh, I'd say he was only an hour or two away. And, and Alan used to go to a, a Russian nightclub in Montmartre or something in Paris. And I mm-hmm. think uh, George would have come down and because he used to meet all the Russian emigres there. It was mm-hmm. like... Thousands, tens of thousands mm-hmm. of Russians came across after the Russian Revolution and mm-hmm. lived in Paris. And George, studying, doing his PhD in Belgium, would have come down. He set up a, as a student, he set up a business selling clothes and stuff. He would have come down and got business from that mm-hmm. Russian immigrant population. What I'm going so, to, yeah. But after that, I was going to say, just before the war, mm-hmm. George emigrated to America with help, I'd say, from Alan. But then... The absolute proof was that Alan Dulles, and who was uh, in Rockefeller Oil, and George de Morinchil were working together. They definitely were working together in a company called Humble Oil mm-hmm. that was set up by the Bush family you know, years ago. And it was owned, secretly taken over by, by uh, Rockefeller. But they were definitely working together before the Americans joined the war in World War Two. They were working together, selling oil to the Nazis. Right. Oh well, you need to make a buck in yeah, life. Yeah, a bit of a buck. Yes, yeah. Yeah. Now, and look, I'm just looking at the cover of your book. I'm going to steer you 
Oh, you got it there. Oh, good. Well, yeah. I'm going to steer you towards uh, the Indonesian because you look at the cover, you've got a picture of JFK, you've got a picture of Alan Dulles, and you've got JFK versus Alan Dulles in big lettering, and then in small lettering underneath is Battleground Indonesia. Could you expand on the Battleground Indonesia for us? Battleground Indonesia uh, refers basically to their initially Kennedy's involvement in in settling the sovereignty dispute in West Papua or West New Guinea. And then uh, when that was done, Kennedy became further involved because that was only half the story. He wanted Indonesia, Kennedy wanted Indonesia on side in the Cold War and, and President Sukarno was quite willing to join with Kennedy. They got on very well, you know. Uh, and Kennedy was going to pour in aid to Indonesia to get bring them on side. You know, that was the Kennedy way of getting things done. Mm-hmm. So, but Dulles, Alan Dulles, who was in CIA again, had warned Kennedy, after you settle the New Guinea crisis, don't follow up by pouring in money, you know. So Kennedy did exactly the opposite to what Dulles had advised him to do because Dulles had already arranged for what we call Malaysian confrontation, which was an argument between Malaysia and and Indonesia over decolonisation for the British presence in Malaya, Malaysia. You know? mm-hmm. And so what, what had Dulles done? Dulles had organised for a CIA gunrunner to drop 2,000 uh, rifles, small arms, in Sarawak, and it was taken up by... He gave these weapons to a communist underground group. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so he's arming the communists. Mm-hmm. So that when the uh, disturbance happened, called the Brunei Rebellion in 1962, all the British sent over troops from Singapore, and, of course, they chased away all these, these 2,000 CIA-armed young Chinese communists. They ran across the border mm-hmm. into Indonesian territory in Kalimantan, or Borneo, we used to call it. And that got the attention of Jakarta, and that's how confrontation started. In other words, Dulles knew there was going to be um, uh, a disturbance, huh? and and he he didn't actually start it, but he he threw it in the lap of Jakarta. He he threw it in the lap, saying, "You know, you've helped." Uh, West Papua and get there, you know, kick out the colonial power, the Dutch, you know. Now this is your opportunity to help kick out the British colonial power, you know. Why was he so concerned about removing the British presence in that part of the world? Well, he wasn't. He wasn't concerned about the British. He he was more concerned about Indonesia. Right. But the British and he actually they were working together. The MI6 was working together with him, mm. and. By by starting confrontation with Indonesia, Malaya, Indonesia, it was like a uh, economic warfare. You know, the Indonesian economy went down, 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 down up till 1965, mm-hmm. when it was just screaming with with inflation. You know, mm-hmm. and that's when Suharto took over from Sukarno. Right. It's economic warfare, and so it's, ba- uh, it's basically and, Destabilisation through yes, destabilisation. Seventy yeah. percent of the Indonesian economy. This is in 1965, 64, mm. 65. Seventy mm. percent of the economy was going to the army. Right. 
I mean, wow. The, the place was in, in dire economic you know, trouble. So, so, so why why do this? Why destabilise Sakari? Were they concerned Well, he wanted that, Sakano out. He want, well, he was he concerned Alan he was going Dulles, to join the Chinese, was he? No, he wasn't so that. It, I mean... Kissinger, why would he want him out? That's what Kissinger was saying the whole yeah, time. And yeah. as soon as he got New Guinea, he did a deal with the Chinese, you know? I mean, mm-hmm. come on. The guy's just after money. But um, what happened was... What, money? Alan, but how... how, how <laughs> that's what I'm trying to work out. How is it intertwined, his, his first for money? Yeah. Well, people don't realise our near neighbour, Indonesia, mm-hmm. in for hundreds of years was described as the richest colony in the world. It was Dutch colony, mm-hmm. but it was bigger than, as big as, or if not bigger, bigger according to George Kahn, the American, bigger than India. Right. And it made, it made Amsterdam the financial capital of the world for 150 years. All the wealth they were getting from Indonesia, you know. They were getting mainly uh, agricultural, you know, worth primary mm. produce and mm. selling it all around the world. But they had amazing potential in oil and, um, and of course, gold since 1936. They're sitting on the biggest gold mine in the world by many times. And the Alan Dulles wanted this for Rockefeller, basically. Right. And, and that's why he arranged for Kennedy to intervene to, get, to kick out the Dutch and to give West New Guinea to Indonesia, to Sukarno. And if Sukarno had realised what was happening, he wouldn't have been so happy when he kicked out the Dutch. Mm-hmm. But, but he had, it was the time, 1963, 64, 65, so you know, two years or less than two years later, after getting New Guinea, Sukarno was on the way out. So going back to that period in Indonesian history, you know, we were over, what, almost two million people were slaughtered in a few yeah. months. What, what role did uh, Dulles... That's chapter and, 7, yes. What, chapter what role seven. did Dulles have in this? Well, no, well, he was still operating. He, mm-hmm. uh, Kennedy, after the Bay of Pigs, they said, mm-hmm. um, kicked him out. But I was going to say, in terms of assassination, we mentioned Lumumba before. Mm-hmm. Dulles was also mentioned in relation to the the death of Dag Hammarskjöld, UN Secretary General. When Lumumba was killed, things blew up in the Congo, mm-hmm. and Dag Hammarskjöld went across to uh, settle and try to calm things down, but he was killed in a plane crash. And I'm, I've been saying, in the book I've been saying, well, a woman called Susan Williams wrote an amazing book about the death of Hammarskjöld, but she did not interview Hammarskjöld's right-hand man, and I tracked him down. Well, I got interested in it before she, you know, 10 years before she did, put it mm-hmm. that way. I was, and he'd already passed away by the time she got interested, that's why. Mm-hmm. But this fellow called George... Um, uh, forgetting his name now. That, um, doesn't, that doesn't matter. But keep going. Ivan yeah. Sullivan. George Sullivan's Ivan Smith, his name was. Mm-hmm. He, his, his brother used to run... Bogger Road Jail here in Brisbane. Oh, good old Bogger Road. I'm familiar yeah. with Bogger Road in Brisbane. Yeah, I, I interviewed <laughs> I interviewed him in, in in the UK, and then as just as I was leaving the door, yeah. he, he he and I both realised we came from Brisbane. Right. So he said, "Oh, you better come back. You better come back." You know, <laughs> and and I came back a second time, and that's when he told me all the details about Doug, uh, UN Secretary General, 
uh, uh, Hammarskjöld was planning to intervene in this crisis in, over sovereignty of Western Guinea, mm-hmm. crisis between the Dutch and the Indonesians. He was planning to intervene to give the Papuans independence. And, of course, this was, this was exactly what Alan Dulles did not want to hear mm-hmm. because Alan Dulles' solution was what Kennedy, was going, Kennedy eventually did was to hand Indonesia control of West Papua that's, by that means they got the gold mine as well. Then they replaced Sukarno with a military regime, with Suharto. That's how, that's how Allen got control of the gold. Well, that's how Rockefeller interests got control of the gold. Mm. But had Hammarskjöld intervened, it would have been Papuan independence and Papuans in control of their own country, you know? Mm. And oh, they, could get, they could hire anybody, I suppose, to to mine the gold, but they, they didn't know about the gold. Kennedy didn't know about the gold. Neither did Sukarno. They didn't even know about the gold. Hammarskjöld did not know about the gold. So this was going on under the table, and that's why Hammarskjöld had to, had to be wiped off, because he was intervening in a big way. Mm-hmm. But that was one of the killings. The other, when 1965 was coming around, Alan had already been removed by Kennedy in 61, but he was still in a very powerful position. He still occupied the old CIA headquarters in Washington. They, down, they call it Foggy Bottom. It's a suburb in, in Washington down by the river. But the new CIA Langley, Virginia headquarters, which is what they're using today, were designed by Allen, but he never actually got the chance to, to operate there. You know? mm-hmm. he, he stayed in the old headquarters, and that's where he operated for a few years 60, when he got kicked out, 60 two, three, four, you know, he was still operating. When the time came for Sukarno to be replaced, he, Alan was still, uh, he was actually interviewed six months before then, saying, oh, I can't talk about that because this is still an ongoing operation. <laughs> so, mm-hmm. you know, he, he obviously knows what's about to happen. So what happened in 1965? So Kennedy's gone and Hammarskjöld's gone and we're... Let, let's get before we go into what happened sixty-five. So you said Kennedy's gone. So what's the relationship of JFK and Alan Dulles? Because yeah, well, obviously Alan, that's the, that's the big. That's right. Yeah. Sorry. Because Kennedy, when when Malaysian confrontation started, the U.S. Senate objected to pouring this Kennedy aid over to Sukarno. Mm-hmm. They did not want to help Sukarno because they thought he was responsible for uh, starting a conflict with their allies, the British. Right. Uh, so because of that, they said, we're not going to help Indonesia if they're, if they're you know, going to have confrontation with Malaysia. You know? So they stopped, they stopped the, the USA, and that, that was jeopardising JFK's entire program for bringing Indonesia on side in the Cold War. Mm-hmm. But there's another issue here, which I go into in Chapter 7 as well, and it's to do with Alan Dulles again, but he, Alan Dulles discovered or found or <laughs> found out that Moscow and Beijing, which they look, many people saw as a, a monolithic communist rule, the, you know, they were the, the other side in the Cold War, they were actually arguing over ideological issues. They were rivals. They weren't just one communist bloc. It was Moscow versus Beijing, Mm. and it was getting worse and worse, and 
Moscow and Beijing each needed support for their case. When the, when the communists met every year, they'd have a basically big discussion. They needed the support of the third biggest communist party in the world, that was Indonesia. That's right. Mm. And they had like had 20 million followers. Aidit was head of the communist party there. And he was being uh, asked by Moscow, by Beijing, to you know, support our side, you know. And uh, that's really the, the main issue that got... When Alan Dulles brought this to the attention of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, they realised this is an amazing potential to split Moscow and Beijing. And Kennedy, in 1963, had been planning to to actually visit Jakarta and support Sukarno in order, and stop Malaysian confrontation. And I had a letter from Dean Rusk, an actually a handwritten letter, uh, saying that was the arrangement on Kennedy's visit to visit Sukarno. He was going to stop Malaysian confrontation. And had he done that, it would have completely messed up Alan Dulles' plans for regime change. So, so, the so you're, not, you're, not, you're, not, you're not suggesting that JFK's assassination had something to do with Alan Dulles? I'm saying Alan Dulles absolutely planned it. Well, yes. tell us, could you expand on that point? Well, I'm not the only one, too. No, but, no, no, uh, no, 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 I'm not yeah. questioning. I just want you to expand yeah, but, it for, um, for our listeners. Well, had, had JFK gone ahead and made that visit to Jakarta, supported President Sukarno, he would have probably got the Nobel Peace Prize. He, he would have been re-elected for the next term for the presidency. But more than that, he would have got US aid flowing again to Indonesia. Mm-hmm. On the other side of the coin, Alan Dulles didn't want that solution. He wanted for the PKI to be eliminated because if they ever had elections in Indonesia, the PKI would have been voted into power. Hmm. Now, when we say that, we, it's like the British, the head man in the British desk in London had assessed the PKI and said, hold on, hold on, they're not even communists, you know. They're Chavanese nationalists, they're extreme, but they're not communists, you know. Mm-hmm. And on that basis, I think Sukarno had told Kennedy, don't worry about the PKI, you know. You've got fewer than 10% are actually communists. The rest of them are peasant farmers. They're rice farmers, you know. But, you know, who knows? I, I'm not going to... But <laughs> but it never happened. Because Kennedy was planning that trip to Jakarta, Dulles had to stop him. Otherwise, years and years of planning would have gone down the drain, you know. He, Dulles had already set in place the Indonesian army as coming through to seize power from Sukarno. Yeah. He, he'd, got the, he'd, done, he'd done all the groundwork in 1958. That's even before Kennedy arrived on the scene as president. In 58, Alan Dulles had started a civil war in Indonesia mm-hmm. between Java under Sukarno and the army there and the outer islands. That's Sumatra and Sulawesi mainly, and it started over a, a you know economic dispute over who gets what money and 
instead of 40-60, they wanted 60-40 of all the national revenue sort of thing because mm-hmm. they were supplying all the oil and they got nothing back. Anyway, Dulles put in CIA assistance into the Outer Islands rebels. Right. No, look, we've, we've got about 10 minutes to go, Greg. Yeah, can, to, we go, to, can we go to, back to the JFK story? Okay, yeah. Okay, so, so Dulles had in place uh, people in the Indonesian army and it's been revealed that Suharto was number two on the CIA list as being the most, the best general to oppose the communists. Mm-hmm. Number one general was Nasution, but I, I visited Nasution over 13 years. I used to go along to his house and talk and talk and talk, and he told me a lot of things that uh, he's never said, to, I think, to any other people. One of them was that he blamed Suharto for the death of six generals on the night of the 30th of September 1965. This was the turning point, really, in the Cold War, if you want to look at it. It was when these six generals were killed, Suharto blamed the PKI for killing them, basically. Mm -hmm. But it wasn't the PKI. On the trucks that went to pick up these generals at night, there were hitmen. The Indonesians call them preman. They were they were uh, assassins, and they went to the house of Nasution. They went to the house of Yani, who was head of the army, and they shot Yani when he came down in his pajamas yeah. at three o'clock in the morning. Mm-hmm. And as soon as these generals were killed, Sukarno Suharto, sorry, had his uh, case for opposing the PKI, and he wiped out PKI all over the archipelago. More than mm-hmm. one million. The specialists in, in Jakarta say now, more than oh, one million right. people. You know? Within a few months. It, now, now, going back going back to the JFK connection, now, are you suggesting that Alan Dulles had something to do with his assassination? He, he would have given the go-ahead. He, Alan Dulles convinced the Joint Chiefs of Staff that if Kennedy went to Jakarta to talk peace with, Suha, with mm-hmm. Sukarno, it would ruin the plan to split Moscow and Beijing. So he had to go. What he didn't tell the Joint Chiefs was that there's a big gold mine there as well, you know. Mm-hmm. The, the regime change would not have happened, Indonesia, regime change would not have happened if had Kennedy gone to Jakarta and made peace with Indonesia. So to got Malaysia, ended Malaysian Indonesian-Malaysian confrontation. He would have ended it. So you saying been re-elected. This, so you're saying this bloke called George, I think you mentioned earlier in the uh, in the interview, who yeah. was a friend of Oswald, who Dulles knew. George de Morin Shield, yes. Yeah. Yeah. Was he involved. Said, he, said, he set Oswald up, basically. Right. He, he didn't know he was going to be used for that purpose, mm-hmm. but he befriended him and handed him over to people who then gave Oswald a job in the Texas book repository, you know. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And he only had that... He had another job, actually. Oswald had another job, but the, this woman set him up in the in the right spot so he could be blamed. I, I don't think he was even... Uh, it's just ridiculous, the whole story. Mm-hmm. All right, let's move on. What 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 what, what role does it play? To, what, all this stuff you've unearthed over these many years... Yes. What role does it play as far as West Papuan independence is concerned today? Well, Hamashal would have given the Papuans independence. You know, right. It would have ruined Indonesian regime change. Mm-hmm. 
but uh, the Papuans wouldn't have been massacred in the large numbers that they have been over the last 50 years. I mean, that's it's it's as bad as the Armenian massacre. Well, it is. And people haven't people haven't described it like that yet because it's over 50 years. Mm. You're talking about almost, th- you're mm. looking at the same numbers. Yeah. But talking about Freeport, who actually owns Freeport? Well, it started off as as a Rockefeller company, mm-hmm. Freeport itself. It started off in Cuba. Uh, well, Free, Freeport was uh, Freeport Sulphur, but uh, the Rockefeller interests in oil really are the, the main concern. And they started off in the American Civil War, you know, so selling oil to the Union Army mm-hmm. and uh, railways and whatever. But he, he was... I mean, today, who, who actually owns Freeport today? Well, it's a public company, I suppose, but something right. you can tell by looking at some of the directors. Uh, it started off as a Rockefeller company, but it's uh, in the public uh, domain, I suppose, right. as shareholders and whatever. And they should be the ones who are complaining about the fact that I, I dug up this discrepancy two, two grams and 15 grams, you know. What's happening with the gold? The Freeport shareholders should be out at the annual meeting shaking their fists. Mm. So what do you think's happened to the gold? Well, I, I got to know the uh, deputy Freeport security head and he told me uh, gold is loaded sometimes onto plane, onto a, well, when Jim Bob Moffat was head of Freeport, he's retired now. In fact, he's, he's passed away. He, gold used to be brought down, not in gold bars, but it's all gold, uh, uh, crushed up gold separated mm-hmm. from copper. Mm-hmm. It's brought down, put in the plane, and where the plane goes from West Papua regularly, I don't know. It, it could be uh, somehow got gotten into the it must be got somehow included in the gold trade of the world right. i'm not sure how right. beyond that i don't know you need experts in that field exactly. but i do know from the deputy head of freeport security gold was being smuggled regularly i mean normal normal gold and copper go down a pipeline mm-hmm. but the gold that goes is included in that pipeline suits the the annual report saying it's two grams per tonne. Yeah. The rest of the gold is compiled. It's in a big uh, barbed wire-protected uh, office in in the Freeport mine. It's 10,000 feet up the range, you know. Mm-hmm. You can't get anywhere near it. And and it's, it's totally Freeport control, that mine. Freeport operated. It's, it's, more, it's Indonesian, 60% or something Indonesian-controlled. Mm-hmm. People think the Indonesians must control the mine, but they don't. Mm-hmm. It's totally Freeport-controlled. Well, Greg, I'd like to thank you very much for uh, skimming through your book. Obviously, we can't do much in an hour. <laughs> and uh, I, you will, unfortunately, because of the COVID-19 lockdown, you were supposed to be down here in uh, mm. Melbourne on Sunday the 19th of September, but I understand we are going to have a, a Zoom meeting instead. Yes. And yes. which is a bit unfortunate. Maybe, hopefully, when all this settles down, maybe you could come. Maybe we could reinvite you to come down next year and do a, yes. a, a real yes. launch. But if people want to get hold of the book, you can do it through Amazon. And if you've got a, you know, philosophical objection to dealing with Amazon, you can actually get it through the West Papua office. And yes, uh, or the book depository. Mm. I think is a UK outlet. Mm. It was supposed to be over the sold over the counter, you know, mm. but. Uh, yeah, Freeport, uh, 
COVID intervened. Right. <laughs> Maybe Freeport as well. Who but knows? COVID, yeah. COVID intervened, yeah. Sorry about yeah. that. Well, we, we can't help that, can we? <laughs> I don't want you to take the blame the for the COVID-19 pandemic. The worst time in 500 years to publish a book, yeah. yeah. After 30 years, it's just amazing how things change. Look, it's uh, JFK versus Allen, D-U-L-L-E-S, Battleground Dallas. Indonesia, by yes. Greg, Greg Polgrain. And if you want to Polgrain, get onto the yeah. Zoom, I suggest yes. you go to the... Uh, the webpage of the uh, West Papuan office is DFAT, D-F-A-I-T, dot Federal Republic West Papua dot org, or you can phone this number, 0424745155. Well, we've skimmed the surface. Hopefully it's got people's interest, uh, Greg. Mm. And uh, you got anything else in the pipeline? Before I uh, yeah, put it on the table, sort of. Yeah. Okay, well, you got something in the pipeline, and you'll finish it before you go to the next world. Is that what you're suggesting? He's <laughs> <laughs> not going to have any footnotes, but I believe me. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> this one's got... <laughs> Isn't it? Yeah. Well, look, I think it's a, I think it's a great read because it, um, it's like a, a mystery when you go through it, and. Uh, but more importantly, it's a mystery based on fact. It's not about alternative facts. It's about facts. Well, yes. th- thank you very much, Greg, for doing this over thank the last you. 30 years. And uh, yeah. we, uh, we hold uh, you in high esteem for what you've done and what you're still doing for the West Papua Independent Movement. All thank the best. You. Thank you very much. Okay, all the best. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Bye. So it's up to us, the people... We need a treaty in this country. We need the end to the war in this country. And the only way we can do that is through a peace treaty. Not the one you see in Victoria, not the one you see in Queensland, not the one you see in the Northern Territory, because they talk treaty and still lock our people up. They still kill our people. They still desecrate our land and our water. A treaty means peace. A treaty means equality. And a treaty means justice. Thank you. Subscribe to 3CR in 2021. Feed Radical Radio. Subscribe today. Go to 3cr.org.au forward slash subscribe or call the station on 94198377. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.